Well, good morning, church. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Chris McLaughlin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm uh, really just have the privilege today to bring the word to you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible or a device with a Bible on it, uh, if you don't have one, you can use one of the Bibles under the chairs there. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 12, verse 22 this morning. Luke chapter 12, Verse 22, all right, that's where we're going to start this morning. Now, while you're turning there, um, I'm going to ask you this question here. Uh, what do you think these two objects have in common? A remote control and a steering wheel. What might these two objects have in common? The answer, both of these objects provide a very simple test to find out if you are a control freak. Okay, uh, they do. They really do. Let's, let's go ahead and look at the first one here. Test number one. This is the remote control test. And um, this is how it goes. Uh, ask yourself this question. When you're watching television with other people, do you demand to be in control of the remote? Okay, ask yourself that question. If you said yes to that question, you might be a guy. I mean, no. Um, if you said yes to that question, you might be a control freak, okay? <laughs> now, I just got to be honest with you, um, there's going to be a lot of great television going on this fall, all right? So if you're a football fan out there, you know that this week starts the beginning of the official NFL season, right? There's also a ton of great TV on all these different networks. I'm feeling like I'm going to need about three or four hours a day just to catch up with all of the TV that I want to watch this year. Um, it's ridiculous. Now, I don't have that kind of time, but when I do have the time to sit down and watch TV, you can count on the fact that I'm going to be guarding the remote uh, viciously from it falling into the wrong hands, okay? This is how it's going to happen in my house. Um, and so there's that. Uh, let's go to the second test. This is the steering wheel test. Ask yourself this question. When you're in a car with other people, does it make you feel uncomfortable to not be driving? Okay, now think about that one for a second. If you answered yes... You might be a control freak, all right? Now, this is one that I will totally admit to saying yes to. Uh, this one is so weird for me. Whenever I'm not driving, especially if I'm in the passenger seat, I don't know what it is, but like without having the steering wheel in front of me, I feel kind of like exposed and I'm not sure like what to do with my hands. And like, it's just very, it's very strange. Now, think about this for just for a second. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if we had a remote control to control the circumstances in our life, right? Like if the situation just got way too difficult and we're just like, uh, nope, I'm done with that. Click, change the channel, and you move on, right? Or if things get really overwhelming that you can just hit the reset button, that'd be pretty sweet, right? Or, you know, you can turn the volume down when the kids get too loud, right? That'd be pretty good. You know, if you use the analogy of the steering wheel, you know, a lot of us, when we get into the driver's seat of our life, I think that we find ourselves at times gripping that steering wheel just a little bit too tightly, right? Like we're trying to steer around these potholes and the speed bumps and all those sorts of things in order to get ourselves onto the road that's going to lead us to where we want to go. That straight and narrow path that we want to get to. That's where we want to be. But we tr always try to, in one way or another, control those circumstances in our life to get us to exactly where we want to be. And in fact, I think that what we can learn from this is that in some degree or another, we all have control issues. 
we don't have to want to hold the remote control or to be behind the steering wheel to recognize that we all want some element of control in our life. And so today, we're going to continue in this series called Enemies of the Heart. And in this series, what we've been doing is going through the Gospel of Luke and seeing how Jesus exposes an enemy of our heart, an enemy that tries to take control of our life in one way or another. And in, and in this session, what we're talking about here with um, Luke chapter 12, we're looking at this enemy that's really the illusion of control, the illusion of control. Um, if you are willing and able, I want to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to read this passage together from Luke chapter 12. And we're starting at verse 22. And I didn't put my glasses on, so I can't read this. Okay, here we go. <laughs> and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray together. Our Father, this morning... By the power of your Holy Spirit, through your word, Lord, would you, would you change our heart so that we might trust you as our loving, gracious, and generous Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, everyone. So we've read this passage, and you're probably reading through this and like, okay, Chris, I don't understand where you got this whole illusion of control idea from this passage. So let's do a little bit of work here in the first two verses. So uh, go ahead and look at verse 22 and 23 again. And we're going to begin to see where this illusion of control idea comes from. It says, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body and what you will put on. For life is more than food, in the body more than clothing. Now, I think in order to understand this, we have to look at who exactly Jesus is talking to. It says that he's speaking to his disciples. And when he's talking to this uh, group of disciples, this isn't just referring to the 12, but this is referring to a large number of people who have been following Jesus around, listening to his teachings. 
And these people were regular people. They were common people. Um, people that were probably at that time very poor. And people who really were living day to day for their daily needs. Imagine that your life might be like this. You would get up in the morning and you would go to a job. And after working a full day, your boss would give you your payment for that day. You get paid every day. But the money that you would make would just be enough for you to be able to go get a meal for yourself. Or the money that you would make would just be enough for maybe to get a meal for you and your family. And that's it. And so if you can imagine what that would be like, living day to day like that, like you would have no ability to save any money for the future. You would have no ability to, to start putting things away and really providing for the security of your future or your family. This is the reality that his disciples were living in day after day, that they had no ability to provide for their security in the future. And so Jesus steps into this and he says, listen, don't, don't worry don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your being is really what's going on there. Because you have a father who loves you and who's going to provide for you. Okay? Does that make sense? What's happening there? He's getting to this place. I mean, really, let's, let's bring this into a modern context. Okay? Let's bring this into, into today's world. If we were to say, what are the things that we seek after in order to provide security for ourselves? There's a bunch of things that we, that we start to, to think about. I mean, the first one is pretty obvious. It's money, right? We start thinking about, okay, well, I got to make sure that I'm saving enough money so that one day I can retire. Or I got to make sure that I have enough money in the bank because down the road I have kids that are going to want to go to college or I have a wedding I got to pay for or Sometimes we're even at a place where we're like, I got to make sure I just make it to the end of the month. All right? And so we place our security in our savings, in our 401k, in our life insurance. We place a lot of security in those things. What, if, what about relationships? In particular, a marriage relationship. You know, some of us may be finding our security in the relationship that we have with our spouse. We might hold our spouse up on a pedestal just thinking like, okay, you know, they're the one. They're the one that's providing like my identity, my security, everything that I am. I'm kind of like putting it into them. But then when they don't meet our expectations, our whole world comes crumbling down, right? Our whole world just falls apart. What about, what about our own uh, just self-identity, our own self-image? Sometimes we put our security in that. And basically looking at what other people think of us. So we, try to, we have to dress a certain way. We have to act a certain way. And if we don't do those things, then we're not going to be accepted. Right? And church, it's, it, so for some of us, it, maybe that sounds a little silly, but you know what? To a certain extent, we always do this. In fact, I, I have to say, even some of us, we walk in this room and people have been asking you like, hey, how's your week been going and things like that. And inside, you know that this has been one of the worst weeks of your life that things have been going on in your life that have been just weighing on you. And what's your response? Oh, it's great. Everything's good. Right? It's because what we're doing here is we're putting on this facade because we don't want people to see what's really going on inside of us. Church, in one way or another, we all, we all do this. We all have this, this, this idea that we can place our security in something else other than God. And we're seeking after that. Now you may be asking, okay Chris, 
Should I not have a retirement plan? Should I not get married? Should I, should I not have a positive self-image? All that sort of stuff. Well, look at verse 23. Look at verse 23 in the text. Jesus says, for life, for your being, is more than food. Jesus doesn't say that your life is not food, right? He doesn't say like, just, you know, so you're not supposed to eat. He says your life is more than that. It's more than that. And so, does that mean that we, that we shouldn't have a, is it bad to have a savings account or a 401k or life insurance? No, it's not bad to do those things. But listen, your life is more than your money, okay? Is it bad to get married? Is it bad to have a spouse that you love and that, and that loves you? No, but your life is more than that relationship. Is it bad to look nice when you come to church or, <laughs> or to have friends that love you? No, but listen, your life is more than your image. So, you know, all of my friends in, that are in this room right now that sell life insurance and things like that, don't worry, I'm not trying to run you out of a job. Uh, have life insurance, do those sorts of things. But listen, don't make all of your, don't put all of your trust in that for your security in your life. I think it's kind of ironic, actually. Because when we place Ultimately, when we place our trust in those things, what this passage is telling us is that ultimately it then produces anxiety. It produces worry and stress. And it's ironic because the very things that we're seeking after and chasing after our whole life in order to provide security for us end up bringing us insecurity, (laughs) isn't it? This is the backwards, upside-down nature of the gospel, actually. It's like, um, over and over again, Jesus talks about this idea where, where the kingdom of God is, is just upside down from, uh, from what we might think is reality. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's backwards. It's all upside down. And so through the gospel, Jesus actually offers us a way to be free from this kind of worry. Okay. And what, what's going to happen is through the gospel, our lives can change. We will, we will experience a change in position. We're going to experience a change in perspective. And we're going to experience a change in priority. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's look at the change in position. Um, look back at the text here at verses 25 and 26. Okay? Now when I say change in position, what I mean is, Through the gospel, we're going to change from this position of believing that we are God and that we are in control to a position of being adopted as sons and daughters of the one true God. That's the change in position that we're going to see. So look at verse 25. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? I love Jesus' question here because he cuts right to the core with this question, doesn't he? I can kind of imagine him being a little bit like, I don't know, not snarky is the word, but I I don't know what it is. He's like, "So, so which of you? Which of you think that just by being worried, you can add a single hour to your life? And his point is, is that none of us can. None of us can do this. We do not possess the power 
to add a single hour to our life, not the smallest increment of time to our life through worry. In fact, the scriptures tell us that we don't even have the power to do this, to add any uh, amount of time to our life, period, at all. The scriptures lay out in a number of places that God has set the time of our death, the very hour that we are going to leave this earth. It says um, in Psalm 139, just a beautiful passage that talks about the intimacy by, that, by which God knows us, okay? And look at what he says. He says, you may have heard this before. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now listen to this. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Church, before you were born, God wrote in his book the days that were formed for you. And so he knows the span of your life. He knows when your life on this earth is going to end. And we do not have any control over that. God does. God is God. He is sovereign. And we are not. So Jesus' question back here in Luke 12 when he asks, which of you can, can just by worrying add a single hour to your life? His question here, it actually reveals that enemy of the heart, that illusion of control. What he's revealing here is that, yeah, we don't have control. We don't have control over these sorts of circumstances in our life. And yet we believe for some reason that we can control them and we chase after them, but it's all an illusion. Now, why do we think that we have control over these circumstances in our life? You know, Scott talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, he talked about, remember, uh, he said about our American culture. Uh, the culture that we, that we live in is, is um, really focused on that DIY, can-do attitude. Remember all that he talked about? Well, this, this idea is so pervasive in our culture. It, it began at the founding of our nation, and it's a value that we have adopted as a culture in so many ways, and it even permeates into the way that we view ourselves. We have control. It tells us that all the time. We see this in our movies, right? Because in movies, we just love it when the hero seems like they're out of control, but then at the end, what happens? They take control of the situation and they win, right? We love movies like that. Um, we see it in advertising, which is the funniest place to see this, actually, because it's, it's just so silly. Um, in advertising, what happens? People try to tell us that uh, you want this product, this good or service, right? So buy this thing because it's going to give you some control back in your life. So buy this salad shooter because when you get this, you're going to have more time and you're going to save money for whatever reason, right? But then in the end, it costs money. You've got to pay them money to get it and you've got to figure out a place to store it. So it's like, like when all you really needed was a knife. Like, come on. Um, so you know what I mean? So advertising is so funny like that. It's telling us that we can gain control by buying all these things, but in the end, we're actually giving control away. Um, we see this in our smartphones. and I mean, we just see it all over the place. Um, control 
is everywhere, and, we're, and the culture is constantly trying to tell us that we have control. But the gospel sets us free from the illusion of this control, from being this position of saying, okay, I can be my own God, to the position of now going to, I'm adopted as a child of God. And I have a good, loving, and sovereign Father who's going to provide for everything that I need, right? I mean, okay, if you're a parent, if you're a parent, think about your kids. Do you want them worrying about where their next meal is coming from? Do you want them worrying about the security of their future? No. You do everything you can to provide for them so that they don't worry about their future. But let me tell you something. We have a gracious and loving father who's so much of a better father, so much of a better parent than any one of us. And he cares for his children. He cares for his children. And he does so perfectly. Now the gospel helps us to change our position because the gospel begins, it's, the gospel means good news, but it begins with the bad news. And the bad news is that we are sinners, that we're born in sin. And being born in sin, there is an inherent rebellion against God that is within us. And this rebellion against God gives birth to sin, gives birth to doing things against God's law. And when we do those things against God's law, it makes us guilty before him. And so, church, the bad news is that our situation is not just desperate. Our situation to have any sort of righteous standing before God is absolutely hopeless. It's absolutely hopeless. This is why Paul over and over again says, he calls this state that we're in that we are dead in our sins because we are hopeless. And so we need God's help. Every day we need God's help. But here's the thing. If we begin at that place to begin to accept the reality that we have no control and that we are hopeless and that we need God's help, if we begin to begin to think that way, oh man, that changes everything. Because then we're put in the position of saying, God, you are my loving and caring father and I need you. That's the step to, of how we can change that position of really thinking that we're our own God to being a child of God. Okay? So that's the first one, a change in position. The second one that we're talking about here is a change in perspective. A change in perspective. Go back to the text really quick in Luke 12 and turn to uh, chapter, or sorry, uh, Luke 12, verse 24. And in, this, uh, in these passages here, he's going to give us two examples from real life to show us how God is such a good and loving Father to us. Look at what he says in verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? I think it's fascinating that Jesus chose a raven to talk about. Because number one, he's, he, he, he mentions a bird, okay? And, and birds are, um, birds and fish, according to like the Old Testament, they're kind of lower than some of the other animals, okay? That's, that's one thing. But ravens themselves are unclean animals. 
they're considered to be unclean. So they're like the lowest of the low. And you see this a number of times in the Old Testament, uh, how, that's, how that plays out with ravens. But look at what he says about the ravens. He says, they're really doing nothing to provide for their future, are they? He says, they neither sow nor reap. They don't have storehouses or barns. They're not doing anything to provide for themselves. And yet God cares for them. God feeds them, right? Look at the second example. Jump down to verse uh, 27. Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So the picture that he's painting here is actually, it's actually a picture of grass, first of all. So if you can imagine a hillside covered with grass, and the grass is a, is a tall grass. It's sort of a, a, a tall, stringy grass, the kind that you can walk and kind of run your fingers through as you're walking through it. This grass is very fragile. You get enough sun on it, too much rain, it's going to die. So it's very fragile. But it's also disposable. This is the grass that they would, they would pull out of the ground and they would kind of bunch it up and they would use it for kindling to start fires. All right? So it's fragile, it's disposable, but look what God does with it. He adorns it with the lilies. And you look at a mountainside that's covered in these lilies and just see the beauty of that. Jesus is saying, look, if you're worried about where your security is coming from, where, you know, having food, having clothing, look at the ravens and look at the lilies. Because these are some things that God provides for and cares for. But look, in both of those examples, he says, doesn't God love you more than those things? Yeah. Of course he does. You are his children. And so, um, what Jesus is telling us here, it actually challenges our trust in God. It really challenges our trust in God. I think that's why at the end he says that little line, he says, oh, you of little faith. This is a faith question. Why is it that we just can't seem to trust God with this aspect of our life? Why can't we just trust that he's going to provide for our needs and not worry about these things? The heart of the issue is that we don't really trust that God will provide for us. That's really the heart of it. And it's not that we don't believe that God can provide for us, because most of us believe that God can do what he wants. It's actually that we believe that he won't provide for us. And the reason why we think that is because we think we have to earn it. The reason why we think that God won't provide for us is because we think that we have to earn it. We start to see the needs in our life and we're like, well, I could go to God, I could pray, I can ask him for these things or maybe I should talk to a pastor about it, I don't know, but, but I don't know, I, uh, I'm just not right with God right now. Maybe when I start reading the Bible more or maybe when I start praying on a more regular basis or Maybe when I start coming to church more regularly, maybe then God will hear me and, and, and he'll start providing these things for me. Church, this is a miserable place to live. And not only is it just a terrible place to kind of exist in, but 
this is actually an offense to God. Because at the heart of this, what this is saying is that I need to be in a position where I am owed this provision from God. That's what this is saying. It's saying, I want to I merit myself to this place where God owes me. In church, this is not what we are supposed to be thinking. Who are we? Who are we to ever think that God would owe us anything? He'll never owe us anything. And that is the beauty of the gospel, actually. Because the gospel says that there is only one just and holy God and that there is no circumstances ever where he would owe us a single thing. But in his mercy, in his mercy, out of his love for us, he graciously provides everything that we need. Look at this verse from Titus chapter 3. This is verses 4 and 5. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He provides everything we need, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, not because we've worked our way towards it, no, but because this is a merciful act of a generous and loving God. And so James, in the book of James, is absolutely right. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Everything that we have is, that is good, it is a gift from God. So this is a new perspective, we change our perspective from this idea that we have to earn what God gives us, earn the blessing of God, earn the love of God, to a perspective of, as children of God, that we have a gracious and loving Father who's going to provide everything that we need simply because He loves us. All right? So that's the second one. Let's look at the third. And this is a change in priority. Here's the last one. Back in our passage, jump down to verse... Uh, 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. There's a clear shift that happens in this passage. And it has to do with that word seek. Because in the beginning, he's saying that we're seeking after those things that are going to provide security for our life. And he says, don't seek after that. But instead, seek the kingdom. Instead, seek the kingdom. Jesus gives us a better priority for our life. In other words, what he's saying here, because this is just so cool, he says, if you seek the kingdom, then all these things are added to you as well. You will have that security. He's basically going, going on and saying, you know, you will have all the security you need when you first trust in the love of the Father. So what does this mean? What does this mean to seek the kingdom? To seek the kingdom really is to look for the, a place. The kingdom is a place. It's God's place. It's God's place where God's people live under God's rule. And this place 
exists. It exists today. It exists in heaven and in this kingdom is actually coming to earth. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, what did he say? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And when he said this, this is actually a invasion announcement that the kingdom of this world is about to be overrun by the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is approaching and it is taking over this world. And so what is this kingdom like? In this kingdom, God dwells with his people. In this kingdom, there is no more death. There is no more crying. There is no more pain. We're going to have new bodies, is what it says too. We're going to have new bodies that are not susceptible to decay. That the very way of this world is going to be completely changed. I love this passage in Revelation 22 because it gives us such a, a, a parallel picture from what Jesus is talking about. Revelation 22, verse 1 and 2 says, The angel showed me the river. This is a, a, this picture of the kingdom. It says, Showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So church... Do not worry about your life because there's a river of life that flows from the throne of God. And whatever you need life, you just go, you just go to him. Look what else it says. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Do not worry about what you're going to eat don't worry about how you're going to be provided for because there's a tree in this kingdom and this tree has 12 different kinds of fruit on it and it yields its fruit every month, not just once a year, but 12 times a year. It's a picture of the overabundant generosity of our loving Father that we have nothing to worry about when it comes to our security because he provides and provides and provides. And look what else it says. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The same nations that spend all of its time seeking after finding its own security, it's going to be healed. And it will find its provision in God alone. This is the picture of the kingdom. The kingdom that we're supposed to be seeking after. So what does this mean then? What does this mean for us right now to seek after the kingdom of God? Well, what it means, quite simply, is just this. That we live right now as if the kingdom is here. We live right now as if the kingdom is here. That we don't worry about providing for our own futures, but what, we're, what we are doing is we are trusting. We are trusting the Father that he's going to give us everything that we need. That's what it means to seek the kingdom. And so we're not counting on our 401k. We may have one, but we're not counting on it because it may fail us. And we're not counting on our relationships. We may have those relationships, but we're not counting on them because they may fail us. And we're not counting on the, on the friendships and the love from other people because they may fail us. But what are we counting on? We're counting on the gracious love of our Heavenly Father. Church, 
our Lord Jesus Christ, he embodied this new position, this new perspective, and this new priority perfectly while he was here on earth, demonstrating it perfectly for us. I mean, this new position, this position of where we go from trying to be God, trying to control everything, to being a child of God, where we submit to the will of the Father. Well, Jesus did this perfectly, didn't he? Philippians chapter 2 has this shocking verse in it where it says that Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He submitted to the will of the Father. He held the perfect perspective. He didn't think that, that the love and favor of the Father was something that he had to earn, but it was something that God gave out of his own mercy and generosity and abundance. And so while Jesus was being tempted in the desert, right, the very first temptation that the devil throws at him is he said, look, you, you, you're hungry. You haven't eaten in 40 days. You better eat. So here's a stone. You have the power to turn it into bread. Turn it into bread for yourself and go ahead and eat. And Jesus says, no. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he's trusting in the provision of the Father. Jesus had the perfect priority, seeking the kingdom over seeking the things of this world. And the author of Hebrews tells us so clearly how Jesus saw the future coming kingdom and he let that be uh, really where, where his vision was focused. It says, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross. What is this joy? What is this joy set before him? Well, it was the kingdom. Because he saw the things that were unseen. And he knew that that reality was going to be reality. And so that was what drove him to the cross. Our Savior embodied all three of these things perfectly. And so church, today, as we look at these things, I pray that you will not live in worry or in, in anxiety over your future, but that you will trust in the loving and sovereign provision of the Father because he loves you, he cares for you, he's merciful and he's good. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your word that pierces our hearts and shows us our sin, shows us our shortcomings. But thank you for your gospel that sets us free, for your gospel that shows us that we don't have to live that way any longer. But that, God, we don't have to live with that worry and anxiety. We don't have to chase after the things that this world tells us that we have to chase after. Because God, you are so much better. You are so much bigger. You are a faithful, loving, sovereign God who provides for your children. And so today, Lord, would you call us out 
Call us out of the anxiety. Call us out of the worry so that we might trust you and you alone. We want to put all of our hope, all of our hope in you and no one else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.